The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, July 28, 2009. I'm Terry Arango with my guests, Barbara Lowe Fisher and Dr. Vicki DeBold. We're talking about the swine flu vaccination situation. This is part two with Barbara Lowe Fisher, president and co-founder of the National Vaccine Information Center, who is with us on July 14th. And Vicki is joining us also today. For those of you who don't know Dr. Vicki DeBold. She is an NVIC board member and volunteer director of patient safety. She has worked with the National Vaccine Information Center since 2006 on vaccine safety education projects. Vicki has worked in the healthcare field for more than 30 years as an ICU nurse, healthcare administrator, and health policy analyst, primarily focusing on pediatrics and patient safety. Currently, she is an affiliate faculty member at George Mason University Health Administration and Policy Department. She is the consumer voting member of the Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Since 2008, she's worked on public engagement projects at the National Vaccine Program Office, National Vaccine Advisory Committee, Vaccine Safety Working Group, and she was a consultant to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Board of Scientific Counselors. Ladies, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you very much, Terry. Well, I got an email... That came across my computer screen last night from Ann Zackle from TampaBay.com of the St. Petersburg Times, and she pulled out this quote, vaccine development remains a top priority. The CDC has said that up to 40% of Americans could get swine flu this year and next, and several hundred thousand could die unless a vaccine campaign is successful. So what are the latest world and U.S. statistics on the incidence and seriousness of the swine flu? Well, in the United States, there have been about 43,700 cases that have been confirmed and about 302 deaths that have been associated with those cases of swine flu. Uh, internationally, the World Health Organization is advising don't count anymore uh, to the United States and other countries that have had a lot of cases of swine flu. So the WHO is not counting anymore, and it looks as if the CDC is not going to be counting anymore in terms of lab confirmation. So it's going to be, a, a, in my view, a kind of a question mark as we go forward, because as we talked about last time on this show, uh, only about 20% of all flu-like illness that occurs out there every year during a given flu season is actually type A or type B influenza. So, uh, you know, it, if it looks like flu, 
most most of the time it's going to be categorized as H1N1 if nobody is actually confirming. Mm, I see. Now, what is this, the actual virus that they're concerned about, H1N1, is this actually being easily transmitted? Is it mutating easily? What is the, the real deal on this virus? How virulent is it? How dangerous is it? Well, you know, Vicki made, mm-hmm. uh, was, uh, contributed a lot to the meeting at the FDA on the 23rd. And uh, she basically asked that question to uh, Nancy Cox, who is the uh, CDC's influenza specialist who made a presentation there. Vicki asked the question, has this virus mutated? Is it, is it causing more serious disease? And Vicki can tell you what, what Nancy said. Yeah, I asked her, I, I said to her, put it to her, that what people are really afraid of and the story that's, that's being publicized is that the virus could mutate and it could come something that results in many more hospitalizations and a much higher fatality rate. Uh, I asked her if she saw any evidence that the virus, as it is circulating now in the southern hemisphere, is mutating. And she said no, that they had been looking for certain amino acid um, sequences in the virus, and they had not seen it. And while there are, you know, uh, minor sort of mutations within the virus, it's still considered quite homogeneous, as she put it, um, so they're not seeing much in the way of the virus changing, and, and they're not seeing it at this point changing in ways that would suggest that it would, it's going to become more virulent. As a matter of fact, she mentioned that in some of the <clears throat> experiments and assessments they do on transmissibility, they look at how easily the virus is transmitted amongst ferrets. Ferrets are the animal model that uh, is used to... Uh, understand flu in humans and that there is some trouble, uh, they're having some trouble transmitting the flu from one cage full of ferrets to another cage full. So um, she went on to say that this plus some other information uh, suggests that the, the virus at this point is perhaps not really fully adapted to humans. Okay. So someone at the CDC, a CD representative, Nancy Cox, is saying um, it's not mutating, it's not transmitting, we're having trouble having it transmit. So what is the big alarm for? Well, well I mean, I think good. that's what both Vicki and I, you know, I was in the audience, at, were, were thinking, <laughs> both thinking at the time was certainly the, the CDC's noted authority on influenza. And Nancy Cox, by the way, is the is the um, official at the CDC who confirmed when I was on the committee uh, in, in Vicki's position between 99 and 2003 and asked her the question, how much of all flu-like illness is actually a flu? That is when she said on the record only 20% is actually influenza. Uh, if, if Nancy Cox uh, is saying, and she said it several times, she made it very clear at the outset of this meeting that this virus has not is quite stable, and surprisingly so, in fact, she said, uh, and that it, it uh, is not looking as if, at this point, it is going to become more serious. But as, as we all know, viruses can change, and things could change. But, I mean, exactly why is there so much uh, hype 
coming out of, and it's not just the CDC, it's really what was interesting is the role that the Department of Homeland Security is playing in this. Uh, BARDA, the agency that was created uh, in 2005 with federal legislation, the BioShield uh, uh, Project BioShield legislation and other legislation which uh, enabled the government to work with pharmaceutical companies uh, to fast-track uh, both bioterrorism and pandemic influenza vaccines. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security is playing a big role uh, and, and more of a role now that this new uh, department has been created as of nine, since 911. Uh, so the Department of Health and Human Services is, is not the only agency now that is going to be making these decisions. Um, it, it is also going to be this new Department of, of, of Homeland Security. But um, before we move on from the, the topic of the, the flu vaccine and why CDC is concerned, or the flu the virus, um, I think it, it is important to, to point out that, you know, like, like the major pandemics of the past, I mean, if, if, if this does mutate and become something, you know, of, of, of great concern to everyone, you know, we, we all need to be thinking about it and be prepared. And I think from my conversations with the people at CDC, what's bothering them um, is not so much the, the, the virulence right the second. There are pockets of, of disease within people that they're worried about. They're worried primarily about um, children and young adults, um, and they're worried about some of the atypical deaths that they've uh, that, that have been recorded. Some of the kids who were otherwise healthy um, within 48 hours, you know, are very sick, and some have uh, passed away. And what they're finding on autopsy are some very unusual findings in the lung tissue. I was reading the article that was published in the New England Journal. Um, so, it's it, it's it, I think it's while um, you know right now all, at the population level. It doesn't seem like something that is going to uh, turn into, uh, you know, a, a tremendously terrible pandemic. There are there are some things that some of the CDC people are concerned about, and I think the public needs to understand what those are. And I think that certainly, and as we discussed in the last show, uh, Terry, the um, there are high risk factors uh, with this flu that really are also high risk factors with influenza or indeed any infectious disease, um, if you have a, a, an underlying, a, a, a chronic inflammatory disease uh, such as diabetes, asthma, um, if you have cancer, um, it, I mean, the, there are certain categories of individuals who ha- already have, are ill with something else. Pregnant women seem to be at risk. Um, they're saying that, that this, this influenza appears to be affecting people between the ages of 12 and 17 uh, more than the elderly uh, who may have pre-existing antibodies because of, of uh, past influenza outbreaks that have, that have strains that are similar to this one. Uh, those over 60, I, I think, are uh, thought to have at least some immunity, or 30% of us are thought to have some immunity to this H1N1 novel influenza virus. So there are certainly categories uh, of high-risk uh, individuals who who may be more at risk with if you you know if they get this influenza. But I think I think that right now, still, 
it's this certainly is not the type of quote pandemic that at this point that everybody feared it would be. In other words, like a 1918 type of influenza. And certainly Nancy Cox made that clear at the outset of this meeting on the 23rd, that at this point it, it wasn't like 1918. But as Vicki points out, we don't know if it's going to change. From what you've said, Barbara, that raises a few questions in my mind. If there is, or, and Vicki as well, if there's something odd about the way this um, disease is behaving, isn't that the, the same situation that there are certain people in the population who um, may uh, show ha- have the disease manifest itself in them worse than other people, just like some people may get, some children uh, may get measles and, and other children may not, but you still want to have the vaccines as safe as possible. And if somebody has a chronic condition, how can they withstand the junk that they're proposing to put in these vaccines? And also another question, another point that you brought up, Barbara, was the fact that the elderly have antibodies. Well, is it that the 12 to 17-year-old group didn't have the opportunity to develop the antibodies that the elderly people did? Well, they they presumably haven't been exposed to this particular uh, strain or a relative of this strain Uh, like the older people have. Okay, we have to go to break, and then we'll finish answering these questions when we come back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within. Your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on The Voice. America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Barbara Lou Fisher and Dr. Vicki DeBold from NVIC. And before the break, I had asked uh, Barbara and Vicki uh, about some points that they had made. Some people with this flu, the CDC is seeing some odd things in their lung, lung tissue. And I had... Um, asked, well, in, a, in any given population, some people are going to be affected worse than others. Some children will get measles. Some children won't. Some people will get this um, lung infection. Some people won't. But um, is that worth giving people junk, uh, uh, dangerous junk and vaccines um, without any adequate safety testing and um, jeopardizing everybody? And then I had also asked um, about giving this uh, people at risk, considered at risk, uh, who have chronic uh, diseases, well, how are they going to withstand the junk in the vaccines? And finally, uh, Barbara had made the point about the elderly actually having some antibodies, and I asked her, well, why, don't, why doesn't the 12 to 17-year-old group have antibodies? Ladies? Well, I think that your, your question is a very good one regarding high-risk factors, not, not only for the vaccine, potentially having trouble with the vaccine, but also... It's true that when, when, when we are presented with an exposure to an infectious disease, it, it really depends upon uh, the health that we are in when we're exposed. And that's the same that's true with an exposure to a vaccine because we're all different. We're not all the same. And some of us present uh, with uh, a genetic and biological high-risk factors, already a, a vulnerability to chronic inflammatory disorders, to not being able to resolve chronic inflama- resolve inflammation. So when you're presented with an infectious disease, with a microorganism that causes an infectious disease, if you uh, you can have a complication uh, that will result in chronic inflammation, just like if you were exposed to the vaccine. It is a very individual response. It's a host disease response, a host a host infection response, and a host. Uh, vaccine response. So, so you're right that, that some of the high risk conditions that would perhaps uh, predispose people to having trouble with this infection, like diabetes, asthma, uh, chronic respiratory uh, uh, disorders, um, cancer, heart disease, these may be the, pregnancy. These may be the same conditions that would 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 potentially put someone at risk for. Uh, the vaccine, and that's that is something I talked about, and in in, we've done an interview before the book uh, that I wrote, Autism, uh, Vaccines, and Chronic Inflammation: The New Epidemic. If it, our children who already are chronically inflamed, who already have vaccine-induced chronic inflammation that manifests in learning disabilities, uh, autism, um, intestinal bowel disorders, uh, severe allergy, etc., they may be very much at risk with this vaccine, especially if they put these novel adjuvants they're talking about putting, them, uh, putting into the vaccines. At the same time, they may also be at risk for the swine flu. The question becomes, are you going to take your chances with the swine flu and that exposure, which may, your child may or may not have, and the complication your child may or may not have, or are you going to deliberately subject the child to the vaccine that, you know, that is a deliberate exposure? 
I mean, it's a, it's a hard, hard question that we all have to ask ourselves if we already have children who are stuck on chronic inflammation. But we should have that choice. We well, should definitely. Here's, have that. here's, um, here's a, a story um, that I think illustrates the situation pretty well. Um, the um, FDA committee that I serve on, Verbac, um, uh, both in February and then last week, has dealt with the issue of some uh, two novel adjuvants. Um, that currently are not used in uh, vaccines that are licensed in the U.S., and the two adjuvants are MF-59, and the other one is ASO3. MF-59 is manufactured by Novartis, and ASO3 is manufactured by GlaxoSmithKline. And um, we uh, have been looking at some of the safety data, uh, particularly as it relates to children, and uh, I noticed that in one of the briefing documents that was provided to us for the February meeting, there was an account of a child. Uh, I don't believe they reported what, how old they were, but this was a, a small study of children between the ages of three and nine years old, and it was 100 kids in the study. Um, one kid developed what is called autoimmune hepatitis. And um, uh, and the the concern about MF59 and ASO3 is that both of them contain a um, a chemical or a in a, 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 oil. Um, oil a material oil. that's called squalene, and the body manufactures squalene, but it, their squalene is used as the adjuvant that kind of. Uh, uh, strengthens the immune response in the vaccine, and the concern is that um, because that there's squalene in the vaccine, um, the body can then develop antibodies to squalene and then attack the squalene that's in the human body. Like in your brain? And, um, or or your, your fatty tissues? Your fatty tissue. Um, squalene is, is something that's similar to cholesterol. So anyway, that's where the concern about autoimmunity comes from with respect to these two adjuvants. Now, there was, they reported on a child that developed autoimmune hepatitis. And um, when I asked the manufacturers about this, they said, well, they went back and looked on the day that he got um, his first shot um, with ASO3 in it. It wasn't MF59. It was ASO3. This was a GlaxoSmithKline trial that the child had elevated liver enzymes. So that is suggestive of having hepatitis. So whether this child already had some underlying condition that would predispose him to having an adverse reaction to a vaccine that contains squalene or whether the squalene actually caused the autoimmune hepatitis, <clears throat> I think is a question that's still out on the table. But what I said in the February meeting and then again last week is it begs the question whether we should be administering vaccines with squalene in it to people who are at higher risk. How are we going to identify and screen out individuals who may have uh, very serious adverse reactions to these products? And, the and that, is, that, that question has not been answered. And I believe that's something that ASEP, the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunizations Practices, should be looking at in terms of contraindications who should and should not be getting squalene-containing vaccines. I don't know if that's on their agenda or not, but that definitely is in within their purview. How, how motivated would they be to look at these things since there's no liability? Well, I mean, that's, that's the, 
that's the question. Because of the liability that has been taken away from the manufacturers and from those who provide vaccines, as because of this legislation they've passed in Congress since nine one one, under the justification of we've got to combat bioterrorism, well, they widen the definition of what is a threat to national security, to natural disease outbreaks, which is why we are operating right now under a a national public health emergency declaration by the Departments of Homeland Security and Departments of Health and Human Services. When that declaration is made, because of this legislation that's been passed, it allows the use of an emergency use authorization. Uh, And under the emergency use authorization, experimental vaccines and drugs, such as the experimental swine flu vaccine, uh, can be fast-tracked. And if, if, if they're used on, in a civilian population under the EUA, the emergency use authorization, there is no liability attached. And there also is not a compensation program funded at this point for these experimental uh, vaccines. So it's a very, it's a, I believe it's a very dangerous situation where you can fast track to, uh, products under this EUA, uh, the public health emergency declaration, uh, and not really have anyone accountable or liable for what happens when the, when a vaccine goes wrong in a child or an adult and causes injury or death. Well, and I think that's that 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 context is really important, but that that context is superimposed over the scientific uh, issues that we've had in trying to mm-hmm. establish causal relationships between some of the vaccine adverse uh, uh, events and um, exposure to particular vaccines. I agree. I mean, I I did make a public comment um, at the microphone. There were only a few comments made. The room was packed at that FDA meeting on the 23rd, but there weren't a whole lot of people from the public. And I decided to make a very strong statement at the microphone on behalf of the National Vaccine Information Center. Here's what I said. Although there was a preemptive declaration of a national public health emergency on April 26, which allows the accelerated development of H1N1 swine flu vaccines using unlicensed oil and water adjuvants under the emergency use authorization, as Dr. Cox pointed out this morning, there is no signal that the novel H1N1 virus is mutating to cause more severe complications or excess mortality that surpasses that of influenza circulating in most years. The National Vaccine Information Center does not support the fast-tracking of unlicensed adjuvants under an EUA for flu vaccines that are going to be given to millions of children, especially when there are no published studies identifying which children may be at high risk for developing immune-mediated brain and immune system dysfunction after using adjuvant and flu vaccines. The FDA needs to know more, and parents deserve to know more about oil and water adjuvants before agreeing to get their children vaccinated. And, of course, what we're afraid of is that they are going to put these adjuvants in with very little testing here in the United States, even though these adjuvants have been used in vaccines in other parts of the world. And uh, they have not really been tested here. The FDA has not yet released anything talking about what they're what they found with these adjuvants, but under this EUA, they can rush the, the, these vaccines to into uh, the public use, and they can line our children up and give them. Whether they choose to do that or not, we don't know yet, but they're certainly seriously talking about it. My gosh, when we want to give our kids a gluten-free, casein-free diet, mainstream medicine asks us for published studies 
and here they don't have to give give us any when they're administering something that can cause uh, your child's body to attack his or her own brain tissue. So what else happened at this July 23rd meeting? Who are the other players? What was the atmosphere and mood like? You mentioned BARDA, BioShield. Uh, sounds like it might be a group of, uh, of uh, people gung-ho for this. <laughs> Oh, Terry, I think you, you've hit it on the head. It, it, it's having gone to these meetings for, for several decades um, and having sat on that committee in the late 90s, early 2000s, it's definitely a different, a different uh, atmosphere there now. A different uh, mindset, a different frame of reference, and we'll talk more about that when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, here on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Okay, we're back talking about mood at the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee meeting on July 23rd with Barbara Lou Fisher and Vicky, Dr. Vicky DeBold. Those of whom were there, I asked, what was the mood like? What were who were the other players and agencies? Was it like Pavlovian dogs on testosterone? What? 
Well, I mean, it was it was intense um, in that um, clearly, as I said at the outset of this uh, interview, um, there's a new player, and that's Department of Homeland Security, which is also closely associated with the Department of Defense. So you do have um, a, a bit more energy being put into the idea that we need to, I guess, assume safety and get these products out there because what the goal is is to get this vaccine into as many po- people as possible and stop the, the circulation of this uh, influenza, uh, swine, new novel H1N1 influenza virus. And uh, and I think that Vicki and I are both very concerned about the fa- about applying appropriate safety standards, the kind of safety standards the FDA should always apply to any product that's going to be used by millions and millions of people, particularly children. I mean, they are talking about uh, clinical trials that the manufacturers are going to do and NIAID, NIH is going to do uh, that that don't aren't uh, involving a, a large numbers of, of children and adults. Um, I mean, we're talking in some of these 100 a hundred uh, individuals per arm. That's a very small uh, number to be predicating a national vaccine policy on. And so when they start talking about, oh, we can give it to pregnant women, we can give this maybe to children under six months, when the regular influenza vaccine isn't even licensed for children under under six months, has it really been thoroughly tested? It And if you add the adjuvants in there, it becomes very concerning. Well, and beyond that, when you're talking about giving this to infants and toddlers, you have to also realize that it's going to be given along with all the rest of the vaccines that are in the um, the recommended schedule. So um, there's, I mean, if the, if the, we're dealing with inadequate safety testing, uh, and and in particular the kinds of safety testing that are required to rule out. Uh, autoimmune-associated mm-hmm. illnesses, which require an observation period that's longer than a week or even two months for that matter, um, and a certain kind of, you know, active follow-up, we, you know, we really don't know what we're getting into here. I mean, because, I mean, there, there, there are no plans that I'm aware of to evaluate uh, vaccines with MF59 and ASO3, these squalene-based adjuvants, uh, to evaluate the safety of administering those at the same time that we're administering a lot of other vaccines, many of which still contain thimerosal and very high levels of aluminum in some of them. So we just really don't know what kind of synergistic and interactive effects that, um, you know, can occur when this happens. Uh, So this this is the kind of issue that I tend to raise at these FDA meetings, and I must say I really wish that the public would get more involved and come and send emails uh, to the FDA and try to participate in this because my sense is that the FDA really does want to know what the public thinks about um, these issues, and if they don't hear from us, they don't know. Um, Now, I realize there's a lot going on, and it's hard to, to, to get there, but for the most part, I was the only person on Thursday um, voicing um, questions and concerns um, off the only voice on the committee uh, questioning and raising concerns about a number of things. And I, I think it's 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 really important that that you know the full range of 
uh, public perspectives be fully appreciated by the FDA before they uh, have to engage in making certain kinds of decisions that that are, are very important. But that's a good point, Vicki. I mean, you knew to ask these questions. You knew the questions to ask Nancy Cox, who for our listeners who just joined us, Nancy Cox is from the CDC, and she expressed um, that this virus is not mutating. It's not transmitting. They're having, in fact, trouble transmitting this virus uh, among ferret populations. This virus is surprisingly stable, um, and it, it, the CDC sentiment is that it's not looking as if it will become more serious. But, Vicki, you knew to ask these questions. The, the public who's watching television and who's seeing news stories that say, and several hundred thousand could die unless a vaccine campaign is successful, don't know about these issues and don't know to ask these questions and don't know how to protect their own health. Well, that's very true. They, most people are not educated about health issues, about vaccine issues. Most people trust blindly, like most of us did when we took our children in to be vaccinated right. with childhood vaccines. It, it is, we, we trust. We trust our pediatricians. We trust that the FDA is doing its job. In my sense, I have to say, having sat on that committee for four years, I truly got the sense that the average employee at the, at the FDA, they are, they're young, enthusiastic, uh, professionals who really want to do the right thing. But I think the FDA has been handcuffed by politicians who have passed legislation that have allowed the drug companies to have inordinate influence in the regulatory process and in the policymaking process. This is not right. These companies make a profit. They make a lot of money off of drugs and vaccines. And our regulatory agency, the FDA, has to be, has to be protected from undue influence by pharma. The, the sense I got on the 23rd at that meeting at the FDA was that pharma was far too powerful. They were almost smug when they made their presentations. It was as if it was a done deal. And I think that it's, it, it, it's, I play the blame at the feet of politicians, legislators in Congress who since 911 have inappropriately, uh, given too much power, uh, to special interest groups and and the, the, this vaccine regulatory process has become too politicized. The people at the FDA need to be allowed to do their jobs. Okay, so you have pharmaceutical companies who are making money hand over fist, but then when there are families whose children um, have gotten autoimmune hepatitis or uh, have intractable seizures, 100 seizures per day, you have someone, in, in a politician like Senator Frist, saying that parents are, are filing frivolous lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the dismissal of the seriousness of what's happening out there, we all know our children are going down after getting all of these vaccines. Too many of them are going down. And there's not enough scientific research into the, uh, into the biological mechanisms, bench science, not epidemiological uh, studies where, you know, it, it depends upon who's doing the looking. Uh, it, there's no oversight. Uh, we can't even get independent researchers to get access to the, the uh, vaccine safety data lick information. There's no checks and balances. Okay, so um, 
Uh, pharmaceutical representatives were at the meeting on the 23rd. BARDA was there for our listeners. Mm-hmm. You don't know who BARDA is. Who, what's BARDA? BARDA is an agency that was created uh, underneath uh, 2005 legislation that was related to the, the BioShield legislation uh, that created a, a quasi, I call it a quasi-secret agency within DHHS that was a partnership between the drug companies and the health, um, health officials to create bioterrorism and pandemic influenza vaccines. And, and really what this exercise is right now, this declaration of an emergency and the use, of the, and the possible use of the EUA is a reflection of the power that BARDA has right now. And where's the, explain where the military is in this. Well, of course, the Department of Homeland Security, which was created in the Homeland Security legislation within months of September 11, 2001, uh, created the third largest agency in the federal government. Department of Homeland Security consolidated uh, agencies and power into this agency that is now, it has more than 200,000 employees. And um, BARDA is under that. And the Department of Defense, of course, works very, very closely on issues of homeland security because they're our military force. So you've got public health, civilian public health, all tied up now in the Department of Homeland Security and Department of Defense. It's, it's, it's a little bit, I think, I think we need to keep the Department of Health and Human Services separate. And this is civilian. We're talking about civilian here. We're not talking about the military. But it, to me, it's like they're militarizing the public health infrastructure. Vicki, how ugly is this all? It's hard. I mean, it's, it's very hard being in those meetings and, and sensing that there are agendas that are not just scientific. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's very difficult to deal with this when, when I, you know, keep trying to focus on the science, try to keep focus on mm-hmm. who's at risk, how can we predict who's at risk, how can we protect those uh, individuals who may be harmed by the, the very uh, products that we're trying to create to, to protect them. Um, I've, I, I ask both at the February meeting and then again uh, at this meeting for the preclinical trial data, the animal model data, what do we know about the extent to which these adjuvants cause um, illness in animals, what do we know about uh, giving this to vulnerable populations. What I think the public doesn't understand is that almost all of the clinical trials for vaccines are done on healthy individuals. So the data that we have at the time of licensure is for people who have uh, none of the exclusion criteria for being included in a study. So it's only healthy kids. And then um, the CDC develops the recommendations for universal use. And so then the vaccine is given to sick children. And the specific question that I ask on Thursday is what happens when we give these vaccines to children who have eczema? children who have food allergies, children who already have learning and speech delay issues. I mean, what happens when we give this to the children who have asthma? We already know there are open questions about flu vaccine and wheezing in infants. And so what happens when we, you know, really ramp it up with one of these adjuvants? So the, the, the trick is, I think, for me personally, 
I mean, I, I need to stay focused on the science. What do we know? What do we not know? And the, the obligation that our public uh, institutions like the FDA and the CDC have to the American public to be honest about what they know and what they don't know and that what the open questions are so that parents and other individuals can make meaningful medical decisions about whether or not to consume this product. Great points, Vicki. Excellent. And we will continue when we come back to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Well, the National Vaccine Information Center has been around for decades and decades, so we know that there are more risk factors to, um, to vaccine injury than mercury. However, uh, mercury has been a large causal factor in the autism epidemic. And is, for those who are concerned, is mercury going to be used in these vaccines for the flu uh, pan, uh, so-called pandemic? Yes, it, it, it will definitely be in um, some of the preparations. One of the manufacturers, CSL, was talking about having uh, thimerosal-free pre-filled syringes, but I think that, that the doses of those types of uh, Preparations are going to be very few and far between. 
Um, and the multi-dose vials, at least one manufacturer has discussed uh, containing thimerosal. They're all going to have to have some type of preservative in it. Um, we don't know exactly how much thimerosal, but assuming they use the same platform that they've used to make their seasonal flu vaccines, I think we can assume that there will be 25 micrograms per shot uh, um, in, in each of the vaccines. Now, there's also another preparation that is being discussed, and that's the live virus of the flu mist type of vaccine. So there's one manufacturer making that type of preparation and four making the killed inactivated uh, form of vaccine. And, and, of course, you know that that the only the inactivated would require a preservative. The live virus vaccine that, that they're going to spray up the nose would uh, not be preser- would be preservative free and adjuvant free. But the live virus vaccine does not have to have an adjuvant or a preservative. Okay, if if someone gets a, that live virus vaccine up the nose, they're they're shutting that for like three weeks, right? That was really not discussed, but most live virus vaccines that that are given, including chickenpox, uh, certainly the oral polio vaccine that we don't use anymore. There was shedding that could, it was different types of sh- uh, amounts of time that you could shed depending upon the individual, depending upon the host, depending upon the vaccine. So uh, presumably uh, there is shedding with the flu mist, uh, the annual live virus influenza vaccine, and presumably there would also be shedding uh, with this one. Well, gee, I don't want a teacher shedding over my kid. <laughs> I'm well, I mean, that's How an important question. And that's something that I didn't get a chance to ask, but it was on my list, is, you know, to what extent should people who get the live virus vaccine kind of self-quarantine for a while so that people who are immunocompromised, you know, are, are, are not so likely to come in contact with them. I just don't know what's going to happen with that. And I've seen no data yet on how long that they will shed, um, you know, the attenuated virus. Um, I've heard, you know, in, in, in studies somewhere between like 2 and 12 days you for other the, types of virus. But this particular virus that this manufacturer is growing for the flu mist type of uh, preparation apparently is growing quite well. So I hope this means that it truly is attenuated, um, um, but we need to keep an eye on that. And that's a whole, that's a whole other issue. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't want to forget to mention that this October 2 through 4 National Vaccine Information Center is holding the Fourth International Public Conference on Vaccination where this the issue of swine flu and influenza vaccines will be discussed by one of the leading world's leading experts, Tom Jefferson, who is an Italian epidemiologist, as well as Peter Dashi, who is um, a, a colleague of his. They're both going to be addressing the influenza vaccine issue at our conference. I encourage everyone. You, you won't see this caliber of speakers again coming together in one place uh, very soon again. Well, Vicki, I think um, using – do you mean they're going to use the mercury together with the MF-59 or AS-03? If so, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, that that I am about 100% sure that that's going to occur if they decide to use those adjuvants. Okay, and when you said something about shedding attenuated, did you mean shedding live? They don't know how long that will last? Well, attenuated virus is live virus. It's just weakened. Um, the question is how weakened is it? Uh, uh-huh. uh, and um, the, the, the manufacturers, the four who are making the, the killed virus uh, vaccines, the injectable ones, 
uh, all four of them are apparently are having trouble growing their their particular strains of virus that they chose. But the one that's making the live virus flu mist type of, of vaccine is growing <clears throat> virus so well that they're they're not going to be able to bottle everything that they're growing. So the government is looking at some other uh, ways to actually use that vaccine so it doesn't go to waste. But I think you have to also recognize, and this is something I thought of at the meeting, when you when you take in a, uh, a live virus vaccine, uh, either swallowed like the oral polio vaccine or sprayed up the nose, and it doesn't contain an adjuvant or a preservative, it contains an attenuated virus, yes, there's an issue with with shedding but if you if you look at it intuitively that that virus even though it's lab altered is 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 presenting in the typical way it's presenting in the way that we usually are exposed to flu viruses inhaled uh, someone coughs in your face, you inhale. It goes through the mucosal tract. There's been some suggestion in the medical literature that when you, when you are exposed this way, that you may have a less of an, uh, of a risk of having a, an, an atypical, um, uh, response. That you may have, it may pr- present and, and actually increase your ability to, to produce antibodies and to be, have to be immune. So, I mean, I when I listen to everything, the, the risk factors that were associated with these adjuvants and this pres- mercury preservative and injecting the inactivated vaccine versus having an, another presentation that's more natural, I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder which one is safer. It may actually be the one that's inhaled. Good point. Yeah. Before we run out of time, I want to make listeners aware that on the NVIC website, which is www.nvic.org, there is um, a page that links to many, many other pages and original sources for H1N1 swine flu pandemic, H1N1 swine flu, what about you and your family? And it has uh, topics and subtopics, and the, the main headers are influenza and swine flu, swine flu vaccines, public health laws, being prepared and taking action, and more information. And Barbara and Vicki, do you want to tell us more about these pages? Well, one of the things that we added to that page, in addition to a rundown of the past pandemic influenza epidemics, what they looked at, the current epidemic or pandemic they're saying it is, plus the swine flu vaccine, all the issues of that, as well as the public health laws that govern you at the state level, as well as these new laws that I've talked about today, that have been passed since 911. We also have a section on uh, what can you do, uh, how can you, as a as a parent and as a family, uh, prepare for um, a pandemic uh, declaration of an emergency? Because you need to think about if if they're going to institute, for example, quarantine, you need to, as a family, discuss what you're going to do in that situation. If they decide that, you know, if one of you gets sick or they say, you know, either get vaccinated or be home quarantined, um, what are you going to do as a family? You need to have backup supplies. You need to know that you may be quarantined for several weeks. Are you prepared to, to during that period of time uh uh, have enough uh, there, enough food, enough uh, over-the-counter uh, uh, medications or vitamins or remedies. I mean, you need to think about this because we don't really know what these public health officials are going to do in the fall when they bring this vaccine out and when they start saying, 
you know, whatever the pandemic, the course of the pandemic is going to take, you as a family need to be prepared. Yikes. Vicki, anything to add to that? No, I think it's really sound advice. I mean, the parents are going to need to be really thinking this through. I mean, they need to think about their kids, their kids' health, you know, whether they're willing to take this risk versus that risk. I think, you know, the, the other thing that's being discussed is the use of antivirals. They need to really look into these drugs and be making some decisions so that, you know, you're not having to make these decisions under uh, a lot of stress and pressure. Ladies, thank you. Excellent and very serious information. Again, the website for uh, the pandemic, H1N1 swine flu, what you, what about you and your family on the NVIC website, that link is www.nvic.org forward slash vaccines hyphen and hyphen diseases forward slash H1N1 hyphen swine hyphen flu dot A-S-E-X. And if you have any trouble finding that and want to ask any questions about that link or the show, please email me at taranga at autismone.org. Barbara and Vicki, thank you so much. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Medica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.